Father in heaven, please be with us today. Speak to us from your word. Help us hear what we need to hear. Understand what we can about our own hearts and seek to live according to your call. In Jesus' name, amen. So we spent some time in the book of Acts this fall. Pastor Julie got us started there with the seven days of prayer, and we spent time going through different passages. And, and I want to continue that, and just to give you a little heads up on where we are and where we're headed. So, uh, so Acts will be in Acts this week and the next two weeks. But then on November 23, so I'll be speaking the next couple weeks, then on November 23, uh, you're going to see again for the first time in a long time the Forest Lake Church Choir assembled again as part of a lot of a big, beautiful music day on November 23. So you want to make sure you're here and can be a part of that Sabbath. Uh, And then I also really encourage you to be here on November 30 because that's Thanksgiving weekend. I don't know if you're out of town. Obviously, you can't help that, but tune in if you you are because my mom and dad are going to be in town, and I've asked them to join me to do the message that Sabbath. As you know, we've done the interview format a few times. I'm going to do that with them, and they're going to talk about the, their thankfulness in the context of their experience in ministry over the years that they had the opportunity to serve. So that's going to be a special day, and I uh, hope you're here for that. And then, of course, after that, we're into December, and uh, then we'll be uh, different Christmas themes, including the Sabbath that uh, Cantable and Bells are here with us. We love that Sabbath, um, as well as, again, a, a church Christmas Sabbath, where our choir will be here, and we'll have musicians from all of our different services participating. So some really awesome days ahead. Uh, I know you have a lot going on, but uh, you're going to be sorry to miss any of these. These are going to be really good. All right, so Acts chapter 11. Now, we've spent some time towards the end of this chapter when we talked about the amazing thing that had taken place in Antioch. Do you remember this? How all these different ones were drawn to Antioch, and it became this place where the gospel went out primarily to the Gentiles. Well, now I want us to back up and, and come towards this again, realizing just how remarkable that was and what it took for that to happen. So we start in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So there was trouble. Well, why was there trouble? Well, let me give you a little recap of what has just taken place in the chapter before. I'm not going to give it in detail because we're going to read... Peter's version of the story here in chapter 11, but uh, there's, there's stress because Peter saw a vision, and in that vision, he was told to change the way he thought about reality. And in response to that, he went and he preached to a man by the name of Cornelius who was a Gentile. He was a Roman centurion. And he went into his house and preached to him something that his background, his tradition, would have never allowed him to do. He went in and he preached to him. Now, now let me read you the, the ending part of what happened. So this is Acts chapter 10, verse 44. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. So there were some with Paul of the Jewish tradition. And it's interesting that specifically here, it's referring to them as the circumcision and the uncircumcision. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now I want you to appreciate just how remarkable this short little passage is and what had happened here. So what's taken place so forth in the church? You remember Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So far we have Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on those who had been baptized on the day of Pentecost. Baptism first, then the pouring of the Holy Spirit. Jerusalem, and then it began to spread to Judea. And then you'll find earlier in the book of Acts the story of how some went up to Samaria and taught them, and some of the Samaritans began to believe. Well, the Samaritans were circumcised technically, even though they weren't actually considered part of the Jews. And to them, they believed in the message of Jesus, so the apostles went up there and laid their hands on them, and when they laid hands on them, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. So the Jewish believers received it at Pentecost and then when they were baptized. The Samaritans received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized and the apostles laid hands on them. But now the craziest thing has happened. Before Peter even touched them, before he ever put them in the water, the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles. And did you notice what Peter says? He says, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Why did the Holy Spirit go this route? Well, I'll tell you why I believe the Holy Spirit went this route. It's because if the Spirit had not fallen on them first, there was zero chance Peter was going to baptize them. He'll tell them about Jesus. They're welcome to believe, but at this point, Peter is still functional in the models of his tradition and his context. And that says to be a part of this thing called the way, they're not even called Christians yet, part of this thing called the way, you're going to have to be circumcised and you're going to have to understand a lot of things about the laws of Moses. So he might have said at the end of his talk and made a little appeal and said, now, here's a list of things you need to do and if you'll do those, we'll baptize you, you can actually become a part of us. They still perceived it is you had to be a part of Judaism to be a part of this new thing that would become Christianity. But the Spirit said, no, you need to understand that's not the new way. So the Spirit came upon them, and Peter responded to what the the Spirit had done. And then that brings us to chapter 11 again. So now we're going to read through how this encounter went. So verse 1, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, 
let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And when I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So the challenge to him in the vision hits right at his context, right at his tradition, and right at his practice. Verse 8, but I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. So he's pointing out the ones that were with him and went to Caesarea with him. These six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. That's a very important statement he makes. He makes an equivalence statement. Do you see that? The Spirit fell on them the exact same way it fell on us. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now here's his conclusion. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? It's quite a speech, isn't it? It's quite a story. And when you get to the end of this story, you have a problem. If you are one of the leaders in Jerusalem, you have a problem. And that problem is, now what? Peter believes that he has received new understanding. That's clear. But has he? See, there's two options in your response here. One option, Peter is delusional. The other option, Peter is correct. Now, you'd be forgiven if you went Peter is delusional. I mean, really, I mean, let's, let's remember the story, right? This is Peter we're talking about. He has a history of failure, right? He denied the Lord at an important point. You ever heard whispers like that about somebody? I'm not sure we can trust him. Okay? Or here's another one. You could go the stress route. You know, it's been really stressful on all of us ever since Stephen was stoned. It's really been hard. And it, it may be that Peter's cracked under the pressure. Or here's another possibility. He's, he's frustrated with the Jews because they're persecuting, and he's trying to get in good with the Gentiles. Yeah? These are pretty good arguments, right? How about this one? You ever heard this one? Okay, Peter, I'm not sure what happened, but I know God would never do that. 
You ever heard that one? Ever heard somebody say that? I'm not sure what happened in your case because I wasn't there, but I know for sure God's not going to pour his spirit on uncircumcised Gentiles, so let's just rule that out. Right? Or how about this? You talk about a vision. Did anybody else have this vision? Or is this just something in your mind, Peter? Huh? Or here's another one. Oh, I've seen a spirit fall upon the Gentiles, but I wouldn't call it a Holy Spirit. Right? There's a lot of ways out of this. Here's the thing. Whether you go with Peter is delusional or Peter is correct, there is a cost. Let's, let's just go down this road for a second. You're in the room. Peter's told this story. And it's sinking, in, sinking into your head and you're thinking, what if Peter's correct? Well, here's what it's going to cost you. Number one, loss of identity. What do I mean by that? You have been the people of God for over a thousand years. And now all of a sudden you're going to say everybody's the people of God? Come on. That's too much. Our whole identity is centered in being the people of God. And you're going to open it up to the Gentiles? That's crazy. Here's another one. Loss of control. What's going to happen when these Gentiles who have not embraced all of the other stuff start coming in the middle of here? They're not going to listen to us. They're not going to do what we say. Loss of familiarity. You know, it just doesn't feel the same around here anymore with all these Gentiles. Loss of traditions. Are you kidding me? My family's been doing it this way since we came back from Babylon. Loss of centralization. See, here's the thing. Everybody that's a Jew knew that the center of everything that mattered was Jerusalem. And so the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were the ones that mattered as long as everybody was Jews. But what happens when Gentiles become believers? Are they going to look to Jerusalem? Loss of uniformity. We're not going to have uniform practice anymore. We won't be doing the same things. They probably won't even keep the feasts. See, there is a cost if you believe that Peter is correct. But you know what the cost would have been if they had decided Peter was delusional? We wouldn't be here. Right? Because maybe some of you are Jewish, but most of us are Gentiles, right? And if they decided, no, Peter's crazy, Gentiles can't have the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be here. What did they decide? Verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent. To me, that is a very significant phrase because they're like, wow. The crushing reality fell upon them. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Amen indeed. Amen indeed. It was a brave move. 
for it marked the beginning of the end of so much. And we'll get on later in this chapter and you'll see how it's not Jerusalem anymore now, it's Antioch. And then it spreads. All right. What we need to wrestle with today related to this is this point. This crisis described here occurs in one form or another in every generation. Every generation. You see, there's, there's always these two realities. There's the slide towards apostasy versus the irrational clinging to what the Spirit has declared obsolete. See, we're always caught in that. And it's hard to know which things are which because there is such thing as the slide into apostasy. I mean, look at, look at Israel's history. They slid into apostasy lots of times. But also, sometimes they clung to things they should have let go. We have this in our own history as an Adventist church. We have our own versions of this. The challenges of different generations. I'll mention one example. Race. Okay, the Adventist church doesn't go back a really long time, but we do go back to the the mid-1800s which puts our formation before the the Civil War. Now, most of those Adventists at that point were all in the North, and they mostly lived in the North at that point, and and most of them were associated with the North in the Civil War. But, But when it was over and they began to evangelize into the South, they began to have success in evangelism, in certain quarters with African Americans, but they also had success with certain of the the white Southerners. The problem was they weren't ready to be together. And so they came up with answers for how to deal with that. In those days, the idea of, of the races coming together in church, well, it just didn't seem right. And you know what? All they had to do was turn back and look at their history to say, well, yeah, we've never done that. There must be a theological reason, right? Now, it's not that far removed. I mean, what came of that ultimately was was the model we have to this day where we have uh, what maybe for lack of a better name we'd call state conferences and then we have regional conferences and they overlap each other. And, and the truth is, the optics of it are horrible. It looks really bad. Because traditionally, it was white conferences and black conferences. But the practical reality of it is, I, I mean, there's a, there's a regional conference church within two miles of us. Do you ever feel stress about that? Because I don't. You know, in a practical sense, it's not hurting us at this point in that way necessarily. But I'll come back to that in a minute. I want to tell you a story first. So the year was 1981. My dad was president of the Georgia Cumberland Conference. I came home for home leave, and he said, hey, I want you to come, with a meeting, come to a meeting with me in South Georgia. So we got on the plane. Uh, in those days, the conference had a little airplane. So yeah, there you go, another time. Anyway, flew down there 
and went to this meeting. And, and the evangelist Lyle Albrecht had been there, and he was doing a series, and it had been an effective series, and a lot of people were about to be baptized, but there was an African-American couple that wanted to be baptized. 1981. And that local church in the Georgia Cumberland Conference was a little uncomfortable with the notion because it didn't seem like their intention was to go to the black church in town. It was to come to that church. Now, basically, the administrators had gone down there to, at the end of the day, tell them anybody that wants to be baptized can be in this church, so just forget about it. But rather than coming in all heavy-handed on it, they wanted to let them work it through. And I sat there in that room and listened to these folks, obviously all white, talk at length until our true theology finally brought them to the point where they said, yeah, I guess, I guess we need to let them join. 1981. It's not that long ago. But they had reasons that they thought were important. So, so here we are. We have, we have what we have today. We have uh, regional conferences that are traditionally black conferences and, and state conferences that were traditionally white conferences. Now, as for the whole question with regional conferences and stuff like that, here's, here's reality. I have no relevant opinion on the continued existence of regional conferences. I don't have the background to understand it. I don't have the wisdom to know the right way to go with it. And from a practical standpoint, it doesn't seem like it's hurting us on the ground. So, so that's a decision for somebody else. I'm, I really have no part in that. But let me what, tell you what I do have a part in. I do have relevant convictions when it comes to us. And that conviction is this. In this place, race must not divide us. Okay? Race must not divide us here. God has called all manner of peoples into this place. Now, let me, let me add to that this. Having said that, I'm not under any illusion that somehow we have achieved equal accommodation and equal acknowledgement and equal participation in leadership of people from all races, because we haven't. But I will affirm that we're committed to continuing to try, because here's the reality. This church historically was what was called a white church. So most of our tradition and practice comes from that context. And people like me are largely blind to that context because it's what I've known all my life. And so there are ways in which we do things that might be subtly discriminatory without us even really knowing it. And that's why we keep working towards this goal without assuming that just because we're a somewhat integrated community that we've achieved it. But that's our conviction. And it happens in the context of our past, and we wrestle with it. There's another area. There's another area like this, and it's, it's music. Music. 
Now on this ground, I, I will give this church credit because if you look over the last 25, 30 years, this church took a deliberate course to be tolerant of different musical forms. Okay, I want to give credit for tolerant, but I want to follow that up by saying, at the end of the day, tolerance is not our goal. Are you happy stopping there? Oh yeah, we'll put up with that as long as it stays over there. What if we were tolerant of race? Yeah, they can come to our church as long as they stay in their service. Put it in that context, it gets real ugly, doesn't it? Okay? Tolerance is not our goal. Integration and acceptance is our true goal. Now, now let me say something to everyone out there that is my age and older. All right, I'm going to tell you what my age is so you know where to put yourself in. You don't have to raise your hands. I'm 54. And let me tell you, I'm more than a little excited because when my birthday rolls around in April, I'll be 55 and I'll be allowed to go to Young at Heart as an actual invited person. All right? You got to be 55 to get in there. I'm going to come with my ID out. This is for me. Just walk right in there. All right, why do I say those my age and older? Well, here's the reason. I happen to be born on the very year that is considered the demarcation between the baby boomers and the Gen Xers. So I've lived my whole life in this wilderness in between, never understanding anyone on either side of me. So pitiful, isn't it? No, right on that dividing line. So let me talk to everybody my age and older. You baby boomers are in for some soul-searching in the days ahead. And this is quite ironic if you remember you're the generation that used to say never trust anyone over 30. It's been a long time since you've been trustworthy, if that's the rule. Right? Do you remember how oppressive the generation before you felt? when they were intolerant of how you wanted to do things and how hard you struggled to get out from under their crushing oppression, you have become the oppression. <laughs> I don't know if you know the saying, but there's a new saying that, that millennials primarily, but some of the others say it too. The saying is this. You'll see it on social media and so forth. It's, okay, boomer. Have you heard that one? That's because you're not where they are. I only know it because I have children. And what it means is you're not even worth arguing with. So, okay, stay in your world. We're just going to go ahead and do this. I mean, for the generation that fancied itself on the cutting edge of everything, can you believe that's what those ungrateful young people are saying about you now? It's difficult to reach those points. And you need to realize something that's taken place in this church is that the lay leadership of this church has shifted. 
It has shifted from when I arrived here from almost exclusively baby boomer leadership to now primarily Gen X leadership. And let me tell you about the generation behind you, which you never paid any attention to all these years. They don't see reality like you do. They want to mix things up more than you did. They're not purists the way you were. We'll come back to that in a minute, but I want to go one other place here. While we're on this subject of those, those moments we arrive at where what was behind us feels so important, and that's in the context of women in ministry. It's ironic in many ways that I find our current debate reveals within us a chauvinism that I never imagined we had. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Thanks in no small part to the reality that Ellen White was a woman. I'm not going too fast for you, right? (laughs) Thanks in no small part to the reality that Ellen White was a woman, we never had gender-exclusive theology. If you look at our theology in the past, there's nothing in it that's gender-exclusive. We didn't have a theology on that. Now, having said that, we did have gender-exclusive traditions, and we did have gender-exclusive proclivities, but none of those things was actually in our theology. They were just the way we did things. Well, where did they come from? Well, they came from the culture of the time. That's how it was. Men did this. Women did that. Every now and then, somebody, a woman did something, but it was rare. This is why, because we didn't have this in our theology, this is why women got permission to be elders in local churches. Because when the issue first came up, as culture began to change, we looked at the theology and there was nothing there. So, okay, well, I guess women could be elders. I don't see any reason they couldn't. And then, and then it went the next step. And we decided women could be pastors because there was nothing there. Now, granted, it was counterculture in some ways, but there was no actual theology that we had embraced that stopped it. So it happened. And then what happened after that? Well, then the Holy Spirit began to bless the women equally to the men in those roles. Much in the same way that the Spirit fell upon the Gentiles, the same way the Spirit fell upon the circumcision. So now, you're a church that has this experience. Not all churches do. You've had women on the staff of this church for a long time. So, so I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't actually want you to answer, because I might not like the answer. Here's the question. Can you tell a difference between the way the Spirit is poured out on me or Pastor Mark or Pastor Juan versus the way the Spirit is poured out on Pastor Barb and Pastor Julie? And the reason I don't want you to answer it is because I'm afraid we'd be down here and they'd be up here.
So we let women into these roles, and the Spirit began to bless them in these roles. But it was at this point that we subverted ourselves, ironically not at the point of participation, but rather at the point of recognition. Isn't that ironic? Why? Well, it's simple. Traditions die hard. Traditions die hard. And so in time, those who never liked the idea of women in these roles began to seek a theology to justify exclusion because we didn't have one. We had no theology in our past to justify excluding women from these roles. So some began to speak to seek a theology to justify their predilection, and when they found one, male headship, they sought to pass it off as though it were something we had always believed. But here's the reality. Just because we acted that way doesn't mean it was ever actually part of our theology. We kind of functioned that way, but it was never actually because our theology taught us that. It was because our culture taught us that. Now, this whole theology of of male headship, the standard form that some embraced and sought to promote, well, they stole it, lock, stock, and barrel, from the fundamentalists. And I've told you this before. We are not fundamentalists. Now, yes, we have a very high regard for Scripture, but we're not literal inerrantists. And we interpret lots of things in Scripture through the whole of Scripture. But because we wanted to protect tradition, we took a theology that was foreign to us and tried to put it in our history. And it's not there. And you know what else happened when we did this? We drug along with it several other very unhealthy theologies like the eternal subjugation of Jesus to the Father, which inevitably almost always leads to anti-Trinitarianism. And if you've moved at all in the more conservative circles of the Adventist church over the last 10 years, you have seen a rise in anti-Trinitarianism within that circle because of the inclusion of these doctrines which were never ours. We drug them in. Now, there are people who can make the case for these things very well, but it's retrofit. You won't find the pioneers writing these things. These are not ours. Here's the problem. To people of a certain age, this male headship notion has the appearance of truth because it seems to mirror how we used to do things. Yet the fruit of this doctrine within us is not consistent with the notion of Jesus as direct mediator to us all. Because what begins to happen over time is this notion of of males pushing women out and then they end up coming to the Father through their husbands. That's not our doctrine. And anybody who's actually in a real marriage knows that that marriage is a day-by-day negotiation of reality. And if you don't know that, we have counselors here that are more than happy to meet with you. (laughs) 
because it's not working for you. Okay? Practical reality alone tells you, yeah, it's not that simple. So here's the deal. We have traditions in history that seemingly support the view that men are pastors and women are not. But we never had a theology that taught that. In fact, it was our actual theology that called into question our traditional behaviors regarding race. Our actual theology is the thing that said, you know, yeah, we probably shouldn't be segregating. We should probably be finding a way to reach out and come together. Okay, it wasn't our tradition that taught us that. It was our theology that taught us that. And it's the same thing regarding women. Here's the thing. We cannot ever possibly justify a literal reading of Paul's words regarding women not teaching men or speaking in church and then seek to justify the life and behavior of one of our founders, Ellen White. And and just to tell you that we don't take those counsels literally, we broke it today. You just look at your bulletin. Pastor Julie spoke at the beginning of the service. If we're going to interpret it literally, we're already off, right? Uh, Maybe we could give Lisa and Debbie a pass because all they did was sing. So maybe maybe they get off. Lyris, maybe she gets a pass because she did a children's story. She was talking to children, right? But what are we going to do with Lizette, who called for the offering? Or Janie, who led us in our prayer? See, we don't believe this. We don't believe that the literal counsel of Paul applies in our context. So let's stop pretending we do when it comes to other things. See, here's here's the challenge of having a high view of Scripture. The temptation is to think that the points of specific clarity are the things we should put of first importance. But it seems the truth is The big picture principles are what is of first importance. And it is through them that we then interpret the specifics. Okay, this sounds crazy, but go with me for a second on this. At the time when Peter came and reported what had happened with the Gentiles, all they had was the Old Testament, right? If all you had was the Old Testament, what part of your specific reading of certain passages would have suggested to you it's okay for uncircumcised people to be a part of God's people? Almost nothing. But you did have big picture stuff. It is too small a thing for you to just redeem the house of Israel. I will send you to all nations. You had big picture stuff. So here's a warning to everyone my age and older. The next 20 years will completely rock most of our traditions and forms. Yet, I don't expect that most of these changes will have hardly any impact at all on our actual theology. And that's a little hard to take, right? Is it possible that you can completely change the way we do things and not end up changing the theology? Well, probably yes. Probably yes. 
And the reason I say this to the people my age and older is we had a good run. We've had a good run. But these crazy kids behind us, they, who knows what they're thinking. But if we don't throw them the keys, then it'll die with us. Will we be wise enough to know the difference between our traditions and our doctrines? That's, that's the core question. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Has God granted liberties that we are unwilling to acknowledge? Had we been there in that early church and been Jewish, the notion that someone didn't have to be circumcised would have seemed a liberty not in ours to grant. But yet it was granted. What all has God granted that we will not grant? So here's, here's the challenge. Here's four things. When we deal with these things, because we will, we will continue to deal with them. It's, it's not done here. Four things. Number one, whenever we encounter one of these issues, look for evidence of the Holy Spirit. Think about the story of Peter. It was based solely on the evidence of the Holy Spirit falling upon the Gentiles that he conceded they could be baptized. He conceded the acknowledgement based upon the outpouring of the Spirit. And i got to tell you, this is definitive to me in this whole discussion we're having in our church. Because we don't withhold the acknowledgement after the Spirit has acted. Second, listen to other voices. We get in echo chambers, right? Social media is all about yelling the same things to people who already agree with you. Listen to other voices. Why do we listen to other voices? Well, because all of my conclusions are based on the context that led me to where I am right now. And if I don't hear voices that come in from other directions, I will never gain a deeper understanding than I have right now. So we're going to look for evidence of the Spirit. We're going to listen to other voices. And then we're going to be ready for change and ready to be surprised. Because the kind of changes, they were shocked when they found out the Gentiles were included. Paul even refers to it as the mystery kept hidden that the Gentiles would be included. They were shocked. Prepare to be surprised. And then finally, the fourth one. This one may be the hardest of all. Trust that God will lead the next generation even better than He led us. Yeah, I worry about that one sometimes. You should see staff meeting. All these kids in there, my word. God has brought a new day. At the end of it all, the great challenge is, are we going to perceive the most important thing is preserving our traditions? Or are we going to let God have his own way? That's the challenge.
Because he will act with his spirit. And he will get ahead of us. And he will jump in. What a tragedy if we find ourselves lagging behind where the spirit is already gone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us. You've given us a a rich tradition and background. But more than that, you've given us a very good theology that will serve us well as we wrestle with the challenges of our day. Help us not mistake our proclivities and our traditions for our theology. Help us to be faithful in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen.